This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. More fallout from the pandemic. A growing number of Canadians are determined to avoid ever moving into nursing homes. And a comprehensive look at how our society and culture have been shaped by war. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The federal government says tens of thousands of seniors are at risk of losing benefits because they haven't yet filed their taxes. Ottawa is asking them to submit their returns as soon as possible so payments of the guaranteed income supplement don't get suspended come January 1st. The government estimates that 63,000 seniors could see an interruption in benefit payments if they don't file tax returns quickly. It's Bob Wilson. You've won the Nobel Prize. And so they're trying to reach you, but they cannot. They don't seem to have a number for you. That's security video from Paul Milgram's home. Paul's neighbor and academic colleague from Stanford University, Robert Wilson, showed up in the middle of the night to share the good news that both men had just won the Nobel Prize for Economics. But the organization didn't have Paul's phone number. The 72- and 83-year-olds won for their work, which will help auctions run more efficiently. This is a magnificent exercise that is now being given to all of the veterans. Captain Sir Tom Moore has been given the UK's first ever veterans rail card available to ex-servicemen and women of any age. The 100-year-old, who was knighted after he raised 56 million Canadian dollars for healthcare in Britain, says he feels honored to receive the first discounted train ticket. It could benefit up to 830,000 veterans not already eligible for any existing discounts. A sharp-eyed Shoppers Drug Mart employee saved an Uxbridge, Ontario senior from losing thousands of dollars to fraud. Kathy Lumia was checking out customers when an elderly woman stepped up with a stack of Google gift cards, raising red flags when the shopper was reluctant to explain. Durham Regional Police Financial Crimes Unit said scams involving gift cards and cryptocurrency are on the rise because they're hard to trace, with most of the cards offloaded outside Canada. Most involve scare tactics where fraudsters impersonate a bank or the CRA and threaten arrests. The Saskatchewan farmer who became famous for his legal battle with biotech giant Monsanto has died. Percy Schmeiser passed away Tuesday, just a few days after the release of a new movie about his case called Percy and starring Oscar winner Christopher Walken. Some farmers buy their seeds from the big guys every year to plant. Me, I save my own. That's what I do. 
I'm a seed saver. The Bruno Saskatchewan native hit the spotlight in the late 1990s after he was sued and taken to court by Monsanto for using its genetically modified canola seeds without a license. The farmer denied intentionally using Monsanto's herbicide-resistant seeds, saying they could have blown over from a neighbor's farm. The case went to the Supreme Court of Canada. It ruled that while Percy did infringe on Monsanto's patent, he did not have to pay any damages. Percy Schmeiser was 89. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's an unintended consequence of the pandemic's devastating toll in long-term care. A majority of Canadians are re-evaluating their plans, hoping to avoid ever moving into nursing or retirement homes. That's the conclusion of a poll from the National Institute on Aging at Ryerson University. I reached Executive Director Michael Nyson. What we're seeing is that about 90, 90% of Canadians are fully aware of what's been happening in long-term care since COVID hit in March. And I think that's opened a lot of eyes to the situation. And people are you know, fundamentally reassessing their own futures, right? Uh, where you might have taken for granted that you'll, uh, you'll either age at home as long as possible, someone will take care of you. I think people are starting to sense that they have to take control of their own futures and plan ahead uh, so as to avoid the worst case scenario that we've been seeing over the past several months. How much of an increase is that? I mean, I think that if you would have talked to most people beforehand, they still would have said that they they want to age in place. Yeah, absolutely. I think you can go back probably even 20 years and it'd be safe to say that the vast majority of Canadians want to age at home. I think that's not the news part. I think what's What's really interesting is that uh, for the first time, we're getting to near 100% uh, for people over 65. And that's not to say that, you know, when you had polls where it was 90%, 85%, whatever it is, that the other 15% don't care. But I think what this number shows, the fact that we have near 100%, is really that it's kind of hitting the consciousness of older people across Canada. Uh, You know, that uh, they're really sort of taking more stock, uh, thinking about the future. And something like COVID has really brought it to a pass. But I think essentially what we could say is there's not a Canadian alive right now and certainly not over 65 who isn't seriously considering the implications of whether they could age at home, how could they could age at home, and what happens if they can't. I think a lot of people say this, but they aren't necessarily prepared for it. Are, are people showing any signs of preparing to stay in their homes and, and perhaps pre- preparing before they need to be prepared. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. So the subtitle to our report is, is this even possible, right? And I think there's a lot of factors standing in the way of making this possible, whether they're system level uh, obstacles, you know, such as government funding or whether it's personal preparedness. Uh, So, you know, at the National Institute on Aging, we look at finances, health and social issues. And so when we look at the financial part, we see, well, a lot of Canadians aren't going to be prepared for what it takes. Uh, it's one thing to say you want to age independently, uh, but what we find looking at the evidence is uh, it's usually not a binary decision. You don't go from living at home to a nursing home. There's you know, a gradual decline. You might need a few supports with this or that. Uh, but of course, if you're relying on public home care, for example, in Ontario, uh, you might get three hours a week. So there's still going to be a gap. Uh, as things stand right now, Canadians are going to have to pay for some level of care if they want to stay in their homes for longer. And so we know that there's certainly an element where they're not financially prepared. On the health side, I think, you know, the message of take care of yourself, age well, preventative medicine, I think everyone knows that. Whether people are doing that or not, I think comes down to individual cases. 
Uh, and then there are other factors. Uh, are you talking to your family? Are you expecting an adult child to take care of you? Uh, do, does that adult child know that you're expecting that? Are they close enough to you to actually help you maintain your independence? So there's a lot of factors. I think, you know, they're expressing a desire and a wish uh, and, and maybe even a hope. Whether they're working towards that goal, I think, is really comes down to the individual. And then, of course, there's still the system level challenges that uh, the systems are underfunded, whether it's home care, nursing home care, or even primary care, right? Uh, so there's a lot of factors that are going to stand in the way and make it difficult for Canadians to do this. Uh, but I think COVID's been a wake-up call. What do people have to do to prepare and when should they start even things like modifying their homes? If you're a Canadian, you're starting to hit your 50s, 60s. I think this is where you start having an honest conversation with yourself, with your spouse, with your family. Uh, have your kids left? Are you living in a 2,000-square-foot house that's going to be harder to maintain? Oftentimes, the things that tip people into requiring nursing home care or you know, giving up the home to go into an institution aren't always major, major obstacles. Sometimes it's the inability to maintain the home you have, so clearing snow, cleaning it, uh, that sort of thing. So I think Canadians have to be honest with themselves and say, were something to happen, or if I wanted to age here into my 80s and 90s, can I do it? And I think you know another piece of good news that might also be scary to an extent when it comes to planning is we're living longer than ever. And you know Canadians uh, consistently, when you look at uh, the tables, they actually underestimate how long they're going to live. So most people kind of plan for late 70s, mid 80s, but we're finding increasingly that people are hitting their 90s. So you have these longer time horizons. You're going to need a little bit more money. And you're going to have to put a bit more thought into how you want to age, where you're going to age, and look ahead at least 10 to 15 years. Anything else you want to leave us with? The important message to Canadians of any age, and I think certainly to the younger people who might think that this is always just a concern for, for people over 65, is plan ahead. Whether it's you know putting in place powers of attorney, uh, whether it's talking to your family, whether it's assessing the home that you live in uh, for its sustainability and a long life. I think these are things we should probably be asking ourselves in our 40s and 50s and not waiting until it matters. Michael Nyson, thanks so much. Thank you very much. That was Michael Nyson of the National Institute on Aging at Ryerson University. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. It's the scourge of humanity, but war also drives massive change in society and technological innovation. Eminent Canadian historian Margaret McMillan lays this out in sweeping detail in her latest book, War, How Conflict Shaped Us. I reached her in Oxford, England. You start with Etsy, 5,000-year-old preserved body of a prehistoric man that was discovered in 1991. Why? Well, I thought I was trying to look at how far back it goes. And, you know, there is a view that in, in the past people lived in this pristine and happy and pleasant sort of environment. The story of Utsi, the, the, the body that was found when the glacier melted in Switzerland, is very interesting because initially they thought he was just a shepherd or someone who'd lost his way. And then thanks to modern medicine and modern imaging like MRIs, they found that he'd actually been wounded, that he'd been stabbed, and it looked like he had been in a fight. And so we began to, it helped us, I think, to revise our views of what it was like that far back. Basically, what you're saying is that this kind of terrible violence is is really a part of human nature. Well, it may be. Um, you know, whether that's bred into us, whether it's, you know, something bred into us by evolution or whether it's cultural is very difficult to actually decide. But the sort of random violence, which, you know, people get in a fight in a bar or something, is very different from a purposive organized violence. And 
the organization of violence seems to go back quite a long way. I mean, we have evidence of early fortifications, evidence of early weapons, evidence of mass graves with people who look like they've been killed in conflict. And so we seem to have been organizing ourselves for quite a long time to either defend ourselves or attack others. Why is, why is that so significant? Well, because being organized means that you can use that organization for other things. And there's a very interesting possibility, and I think probably true, that the more organized we became as societies, the better we got at fighting. The better we got at fighting, the more organized we became. And the two seem to have gone in step with each other. And the growth of strong central governments, for example, with considerable powers over society, seems to have been driven very much by the need to be able to use your resources and gather your men in order to fight. You say that nationalism provided the motivation for larger-scale wars and the Industrial Revolution provided the means. I think so, because nationalism was, was a relatively new force in human affairs. And you, know, we don't, you don't see much nationalism before the 19th century. But the 19th century, you see people identifying themselves in groups called nations and feeling a passionate attachment to the nation and, and being prepared to die for it. I mean, it, it can be a very powerful impulse. As we've seen recently, you know, we, we saw it in the breakup of, of Yugoslavia, the passions that nationalism can arouse and, and the willingness to sacrifice. And that helped to motivate large numbers of people to want to fight for their nation. But the Industrial Revolution made it possible to put those large numbers of people in the field, give them the equipment they need, and crucially keep them there for long periods of time. This is really interesting that... War has often resulted in a lot of positive change. Let's begin with uh, people, regular people, getting more rights. Well, it does happen. And, and, you know, people get very sort of upset when I say this, that war can have positive consequences. Because I'm not defending war, and I would never suggest we go to war to get good consequences. But sometimes good does come out of bad. And so changes in the position of women, for example, have have been influenced and, and promoted by the two world wars. And before the First World War, women in a lot of countries didn't have the vote because it was said they didn't really belong in taking parts in decisions that affected the whole of society. And then during the war, they stepped up, they filled in jobs that men had been doing, and at the end of the war, it was really much more difficult to deny them the vote because they'd shown what they could do. And the same thing was true of other working classes. And so you often get improvements in the position of, of hitherto underprivileged groups in society as a result of war. Speaking of women, though, rape is, is like a tool of the war. It is. And I, you know, the, the ways in which women have been treated in war are pretty, pretty awful. Um, they are seen as spoils of war. Women traditionally, through many societies throughout, the, throughout history, have been taken prisoners, made into slaves, or made into extra wives in, in the households of men who have captured them. And rape has been used both as a way of simply letting the soldiers have their heads as a sort of reward, dreadful as that may seem, but it's also been used more deliberately as a weapon to undermine the morale of the enemy. In the war in Bosnia in the 1990s, um, Serb irregular forces used to rape Bosnian Muslim women and say to them, you will now have to bear a Serbian child. So it was a way of, of really trying to destroy the morale and, and, and the cohesion of the Serbian, of, of, the, of the Bosnian Muslims. Contemporarily, ISIS. Exactly. I mean, you look at what happened to the Yazidi women, where they were treated appallingly um, because they were regarded as infidels and regarded as fair spoils of war. 
There have also been a lot of scientific and technological advances. Uh, you make a point about surgery improved because of battlefield surgery. Uh, part of that, a Canadian doctor, Norman Buffune, uh, the idea of triaging patients comes from the battlefield. Yeah, the, the idea of triaging was, was started by the French, first of all, and it, it's a French word. And the idea was that you treated, you, you tried to treat those who were most severely injured first and tried to sort out those who could be sent back behind the lines or those who needed to be treated at once. And often what happens in wars is you get the sorts of injuries on a large scale, which doctors have to learn how to treat. They have to learn how to do amputations. They had to learn how to do facial reconstruction. They had to learn how to do transfusions on the battlefield, which, of course, is where Norman Bethune comes in. And those things which were developed under the pressure of battle actually had real use in, in peacetime. And so so medicines were developed. I mean, penicillin, how to make penicillin was discovered before the Second World War, but it was considered much too expensive to produce. And in war, expense becomes less important. And penicillin was produced, and it not only saved the lives of hundreds of thousands of soldiers in the Second World War, but of course it saved more than that, millions of lives ever since. You mentioned jet planes, uh, all kinds of other things that, uh, you know, make our lives better. Yes, and again, you know, we, we wouldn't do it in this way, but it is one of the unintended consequences of war that sometimes things come out of war which do, in fact, in peacetime make lives better. Um, a lot of the research that was done in the Cold War was done in American universities for military reasons, but a lot of that research helped to produce the great successes of Silicon Valley and helped to make some of the changes with which we are living in peacetime. And so what's your conclusion from all this? My conclusion is that we need to think about war, that it is something that has been with us, that has shaped our society, which we need to try and understand, because it seems to me if you don't understand how wars start and how wars take over and how wars are difficult to end, then you don't really understand what it is to try and build peace. Margaret McMillan, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. That was historian Margaret McMillan. Her latest book is War, How Conflict Shaped Us. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.